Welcome to House Calls, where we talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, delivering kinder, smarter, affordable care for all. I co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of this dynamic healthcare industry. This month, we're looking at an overlooked industry sector that is now receiving a lot of attention, investment capital, and business model innovation. Our article is titled, Learning to Thrive, Integrating Mental Health Services Within K-12 Education. My co-author is Erica Hanpa, a director at Kane Brothers, who is expert on the behavioral health sector. Welcome to House Calls, Erica, where the bankers like you are always in. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here. Erica, our article this month addresses a vital societal issue. We wrote about the growing and truly alarming mental health crisis afflicting America's children and teenagers. Your thesis is that there's an incredible opportunity to address these growing mental health needs through school-based services. We interviewed several impressive mission-driven companies with innovative business models, and we're gonna get into that. But before we get into the companies, let's start our conversation today by helping our listeners understand the extent of the crisis. Tell us about the mental health challenges young people confront and how that trend is developing. As we note in the article, one interesting fact is that it didn't start with the pandemic, though the pandemic certainly hasn't helped. So this was a crisis before the pandemic and probably has become worse because of the pandemic. Yeah, Dave, I think that's right. We've been seeing growing prevalence in anxiety, depression, all sorts of kind of mental health issues among children and adolescents over the past decade or more, really. When you look at kind of persistent feelings of hopelessness and sadness among the population, it was 26% in 2009. 2019, pre-pandemic, it was a little over 36%, and now it's 44%. So, you know, that's one leading indicator, if you will, um, on some of the challenges the youth are facing. And, you know, I think there are a host of reasons that may be happening. I don't know that anyone has the exact answer, but what we do know is that we're seeing these increasing trends and also reduced stigma and people are more willing to talk about it, which is fantastic. But, you know, it's it's been a challenging couple of years. So this trend that wasn't great to begin with has gotten even worse. And there's a real need to get help for these kids so that they can address the underlying issues and thrive. You know, it was in response to this compelling and growing need for mental health services that the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy issued a very rare report specifically on mental health issues, and it had several recommendations. Tell us what you think of the report and the recommendations. I thought it was great that he issued it. I think we've heard folks in the press talking about the need for more services for children and adolescents, and I think this really shines a spotlight on that need and a real call to action, if you will, to get the multi-stakeholders that are involved around this topic to start putting it into action. It's a first step, but an important one in getting access to mental health services for kids, students across the country more readily available. I thought it was great. Well, and again, these reports don't 
come out very often. And it wouldn't surprise me if Murthy's report goes down in history as equivalent to the Surgeon General's report from the 1960s about the hazards of smoking. He sees real clear and present danger in the current environment as it pertains to children and mental health services and so on. And could you just go a little deeper on what drove the report and what are some of the recommendations that the Surgeon General makes? Well, I think the trends we've discussed earlier regarding the alarming increases in the prevalence of mental health conditions amongst teens and children are driving the need for such a report. And he listed several suggestions for what we can do to help remedy this or help alleviate the problem in that, you know, recognizing mental health is an essential part of overall health care and increasing support and funding and, you know, I guess, clinicians that are available by increasing education programs and then providing additional support for the stakeholders in and around um, children, including the educational workforce. So I think those are all important steps to helping to start to alleviate the problem. Yeah, it's really crazy that we in America separate mental health from physical health. I mean, it's almost like taking your car into the shop and having the mechanic come out and say, you know, your engine's not really working. I can fix that, but your brakes are also shot. Here's an 800 number, you know, good luck. So the idea of having more holistic approaches that integrate mental and physical health services together is really powerful. And I know that was that was part of his perspective as well. Before we dive into the school services part of our discussion, could you explain how American society funds mental health services for children today? In many respects, it's a hodgepodge of funding sources that aren't always aligned with the needs and never seem like they're enough. Sure. So broadly for mental health funding, there are several buckets. I think the government is broadly the, the largest payer, not, not unlike other areas of healthcare, but Medicaid programs in particular when you think about mental health. And then there are also state and community organizations and nonprofits that are providing services for people with mental health challenges. I will say just on mental health broadly, it does tend to be disproportionately covered by Medicaid because of the challenges severe mental illness can cause for an individual. But beyond that, there are you know state programs that vary state to state. A lot of the funding has come through education services. So you know, beginning with the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act, which has federal funding, and then there are also state education appropriations and other funding sources and requirements, frankly, that are there for education purposes that are also able to help fuel support for mental health services, particularly for the population that has a mental illness and requires additional support in the school setting. So through IDEA or other kind of education funding and programs that come via the federal and state level. And then there are also pathways to get Medicaid funding into the schools to provide services for the Medicaid population as well. CMS and SAMHSA, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, issued a joint release on that a couple of years ago. It was a joint information bulletin to provide additional information to folks on how you could get Medicaid support into providing services for mental health in schools. Wow. It almost feels like you need a PhD in acronyms to navigate the Medicaid space to get funding in. I just got to believe it on the ground level that leads to a lot of scrambling and probably under service. Would you agree with that? 
I think it varies a lot. Mm-hmm. I think there are some areas where there probably is a decent amount of services available for the population. And there are certainly some states and counties that are leaders in, in thinking about it that way. But it does vary a lot. Explain why the school is actually a great place, maybe the best place to access mental health services. I'm sure there are people out there who feel schools are just for education and shouldn't even be in the mental health business. Why are they wrong? So inherently, I think education and mental health are tied together, right? You can't have a great education without having great mental health, because if your mental health is compromised, it's harder to be engaged in the classroom to thrive socially and academically when you're in the school. And given the amount of time that kids spend in a classroom with teachers and counselors and coaches, that creates a real opportunity for those individuals who have been properly trained to be able to kind of notice changes when they're coming up that might not otherwise be seen. And they see the kids interacting with their classmates throughout the school year. So I think those are a couple of good reasons. And then also the fact that every child has a right to an education in this country that, you know, you have the opportunity to remove some of the inequities, I'll say, for lack of a better word, that might exist in getting access to care. And if you have the ability to provide the services into a school district setting, you can eliminate some of the barriers that come to receiving services outside of the school. You know, there's a huge shortage and demand for childhood psychiatry, psychology and counseling services. And it can take three to six, seven months for a kid to get access to services outside of the school. But if you have services in the school, you can bring that wait time down tremendously and really help the kids much sooner. And Frankly, if you're waiting three to seven months to get seen, there's a chance that that time between inquiring and making an appointment to actually having the appointment could prevent them from ever getting served. Makes sense to me. Healthy mind, healthy body, better student performance. I I also just like the idea that we're getting the challenges associated with mental health just out into the open. So um, it should it should be. The equivalent of going to the school nurse if you cut your hand, right? If you're if if you're having some issues with anxiety or depression or so on, and and uh, really, what better place than the school to acculturate our society to be more aware of mental health challenges, more observant of those that may be undergoing them, and and more successful at intervening early when it can do the most good. So let's talk about the different approaches to providing services in schools. Start with the in-school services model and the senior leaders at the companies we interviewed. Sure. So we talked to a couple of providers of in-school services. The first I'll start with is Effective School Solutions. We talked to Duncan Young, the CEO, and this company provides a multi-tiered system of supports to school districts. And what that means is that there are several levels and options of services that can be provided. At the foundational level, they're providing services to help kind of get a mental health program in place, ensure the staff are adequately trained to implement such a program. But then they go all the way up to what are called tier three services, which provide intensive in-school services for the kids that have the greatest needs. And I think this is a really unique model and, you know, does a lot to help the districts address 
you know, challenges some of the kids might be facing before they perhaps become more acute and potentially preventing that from happening. And then the other was SPG, a division of Unison Therapy Services. And SPG had historically provided speech language pathologists and therapists into schools to support the population. And they have recently expanded into offering mental health services as well. And they've seen this as a growing aspect of their business. I think they said it had more than tripled in the past year, given the demands of the need for mental health services into schools. Great overview, Erica. And let's move our discussion from the in-school services, which has one category of company and, and as you described, a couple doing some very, very interesting things, to now virtual services, which have generally gotten much more attention in the post-COVID environment. But if actually, mental health services was perhaps the first area where virtual care really made its mark. So tell us about virtual care services, discuss broadly some of the companies and CEOs that we interviewed, and give us your take on the role virtual mental health services can provide in being a really positive contributor to improving mental health among kids in and out of school. So when the pandemic started, I actually read a couple of studies around how effective therapy can be delivered virtually. For people with depression in particular, it can be as effective as seeing someone in person. So I think there's a huge reason to support the use of virtual care, particularly for counseling and therapy sessions, especially when you think about the access challenges and the leverage it can create an environment where there is a severe shortage of clinicians that are available to provide services in person. And with the models in schools and, and the challenges we had discussed before around that that access and waiting three to six months to see a counselor, they're able to leverage their networks of therapists to get a kid into service within a few days versus a few months or longer. We talked to Hazel Health, and this is a business that had started by providing virtual urgent care services to prevent a kid from needing to leave school because of a minor ailment and prevent a parent from having to come pick them up to treat a minor ailment that could be effectively cared for via virtual support with a clinician into the school. And they've expanded more recently into mental health services to help really alleviate that access problem we've been talking about. And what Hazel does is contract with school districts to get the services and improve the access for their student populations. And I think it's a really innovative model helping a lot of students. And then the other one we talked to is dot-com therapy, which was founded similarly to uh, SPG actually in providing speech language pathology services and has then broadened their offering to include occupational therapists and psychologists and their offering therapy and mental health services into school districts as well via the virtual model. So we've got in-school services, virtual services, and you've done a great job of describing both. The third category that we looked at uh, were companies that provide school services in institutional settings. One in particular, LearnWell. Tell us about LearnWell and why their services are so necessary as a component to addressing the broader mental health challenges in kids and teenagers. Yeah, and it's funny, LearnWell is a company I learned about a couple of years ago, and 
I thought it did a nice job of bringing it in and showing the integration between education and mental health, but in, in the reverse almost of what we've been talking about with the other providers and that they are providing services into residential treatment settings and psychiatric hospitals and more intensive care settings, but they're providing services to help kids keep up with their educational needs while they are in treatment so that they don't fall behind when they return to the classroom. And I think that's just as imperative when you think about kind of the overall aspect of thriving and being well. And, you know, I thought this was a really interesting model. The children have a right and are required to still receive their educational services. And what LearnWell does is really coordinate with all of the involved stakeholders, including the school districts, the facilities, and the families to help the kids keep up with their classwork during their time in treatment. And beyond that, they've also recently launched an outpatient counseling model as well to be able to help in more traditional outpatient levels of care as well, and potentially down the road having, you know, that full continuum and step-down approach. So these institutional services would be for a very small subset of children and teens that really can't address their challenges within the school. Is that right, Erica? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, for any number of reasons, a child or teen may need to be in a residential treatment program or a behavioral hospital, but any variety of factors can lead to that. There's always going to be some level of acute need for these services. So being able to provide the education services and help them get reintegrated into the schoolroom when they return more quickly, I think is critically important. Yeah, what, what I really liked about this article and in your approach, Erica, was this recognition that there aren't one size fits all models, that these challenges exist on a spectrum and they can vary over time. The good news is that the majority, maybe even the vast majority, we can address in schools proactively with the virtual and in-school services of the kind you described. But for that small group that really needs institutionalized care, we don't want them to lose the school part of the equation. So at the end of the day, in a high-functioning system, we'll catch most of the issues early and, and address them. But those that really do need more intensive help aren't going to be left to fend for themselves. They'll, they'll get appropriate care. So I really liked that aspect of your thesis and, and this particular paper. Anything you want to say regarding that? There's so much unmet need that is happening today. My hope, frankly, with getting more access to mental health services for kids is that we have a society, a population that can flourish more readily and, and really thrive in that for so long, so many mental health challenges have gone untreated. And maybe they didn't end up in an institution as a result of it, but maybe they didn't succeed academically where there was opportunity to do so or didn't go out to reach their greater ambitions because of some of these underlying challenges that remained unaddressed for so long. Perhaps they hadn't become more acute, but they certainly didn't give the individual the opportunity to do everything they had wanted and hoped for. And my hope is that by increasing the access to services, we can improve the overall environment and outcomes across the population. Yeah, I mean, the saddest thing to see is lost human potential. And oftentimes human potential gets snuffed out because of mental health challenges that historically we just haven't 
addressed in as an effective way as we are able to today. So I'm going to take your glasses half full approach. It's a big challenge, but it does feel like we have more resources going for us in many respects than we ever have before. And maybe that's the reason I think we were all struck by the optimism of the people we interviewed. Maybe by nature, they're optimistic, but they also seem to be passionately committed to improving the services, improving the lives of kids, and seem to believe the tide is turning. On the one hand, the companies themselves are succeeding and growing. That's a good thing. But policymakers like Surgeon General Birthday also seem to be putting forward some funding and programming innovations that are helpful. We're seeing this at the state levels uh, in particular. Tell us more about some of the public policy initiatives and highlight one or two that really stand out for you. There have been several state initiatives in California, which is generally fairly progressive, I'll say. They've implemented a new initiative to support mental health services, including comprehensive school-based programs for children. And, you know, we've, we've seen other such initiatives from states. In Maryland, there was a Safe to Learn Act passed in 2018 to fund mental health infrastructure training and implementation. There are various grants from SAMHSA that states and school districts can apply for and be awarded. One is the Project AWARE, which stands for Advancing Recovery, Wellness, and Resiliency in Education, keeping with your theme on the acronym, Safe. But that, (laughs) that program, those grants are around providing mental health services and frameworks into school districts as well. So there are a whole host of different programs and initiatives happening at the state and federal level to address the problem. And I think we're in the stage now where there are a lot of different models being tested and tried, and it's exciting. It's a period of innovation, and I'm really glad to see it because we are seeing access improving. And frankly, with the increased awareness, more folks are looking to do something about it. It's almost as though we're in a race, right? On on the one hand, society is more complex. Social media has introduced a whole host of new challenges that influence mental health. Many of the longstanding issues relating to bullying and, and depression and anxiety still there, peer pressure. And in many ways, that is going up on the one hand. But on the other hand, our ability to identify, respond, intervene appropriately, and intervene early when it has the most effect is also better than it's ever been before. So it's it's a race that feels like we actually can win. And I'm not exactly sure what victory looks like, but I think it will mean that people acknowledge the reality of mental health challenges, the stigma associated with mental health challenges, you know, perhaps even disappears. And as a result, we are just better as individuals, as a society, as communities in helping everyone lead their best life. I mean, I think that's the hope. Well, Erica, what a great discussion. And I really do hope our audience will read our our commentary. But you've been here before. You know the drill. I won't let you get away without making one big, bold prediction. I have a feeling it's going to be about mental health services, but it doesn't have to be. It should be related to healthcare. So, Erica, what big, bold prediction do you have for our audience? Well, I will say, I think the tide is turning on stigma, as you'd mentioned. So my big, bold prediction is that over the next several years, 
the stigma will be gone and we'll see even more demand, but even more access to these services, not only for children and adolescents, but also for the adults that are in need of them and people more willing to go out and seek help when they need it. And as you mentioned before, living their best lives as a result. Yeah. Thriving. Yes. You also use the word flourishing, which I liked as well. Well, I know when we will declare victory as I sit here and think about it, and that will be when we don't even need the term mental health anymore. It's just health. It's just part of being healthy and being well and experiencing well-being. So when we no longer have to talk specifically about mental health, when we are only talking about health that's all-encompassing, I think that's what victory is going to feel like. And it feels closer today than it ever has before. So Erica, thanks again for a great discussion. I really do encourage our listeners to read the article, Learning to Thrive, Integrating Mental Health Services Within K-12 Education. It's an important topic. I hope our audience wants to learn more, and they will certainly learn more by reading the article. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep doing what you do to make our healthcare system kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all.